What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with top athletes, scientists, experts, and more. Learn what the best in the world are doing to perform at their peak and what you can do to unlock your own best performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. It is Masters Week, and to celebrate, we welcome longtime PGA Tour golfer Brad Faxon to the Whoop Podcast. That's right, we got a great golf podcast. First, a reminder, you can get 15% off a Whoop membership if you use the code WILL, that's W-I-L-L. Check us out at whoop.com. Okay, Brad Faxon, without a doubt, one of the best putters the PGA Tour has ever seen. His consistency and precision is nearly unmatched in the history of golf. He led the PGA Tour in putting average three times and set the single-season putting record in 2000, edging out a somewhat well-known golfer, Tiger Woods, in what was Tiger's best season on tour. So imagine that. Brad Faxon outputted Tiger Woods in arguably Tiger's best season on tour. Brad has carved out an outstanding career for himself spanning four decades and is now one of the most sought-after coaches in golf, including working directly with Rory McIlroy, one of the world's best. Brad and I discuss the lessons he learned in golf at a young age, his eight-year winless drought after going pro, and what he learned about self-doubt during the toughest stretch of his career, the mindset necessary to be a great putter, and how learning to accept the putts you miss is the key to accomplishing your next goal, how he thinks about health and performance, and the role that Whoop plays in his life, and the upcoming Masters, just how challenging Augusta National truly is, and a rapid fire on all things golf, favorite golf courses, etc. Without further ado, here is Brad Faxon. Brad, welcome to the Whoop Podcast. Will, this is an honor. Thanks so much. I really admire uh, a lot about uh, your career and your life, and we're going to talk about uh, the upcoming Masters, and we're going to talk about Augusta National and and all of that. But I want to start with you and your career. Growing up, did you know that you were going to be a professional golfer? Was that always the dream? Not not really. I I, I was lucky because I grew up in Rhode Island, not far from where you are, about an hour south in, in a little town called Barrington. I had a dad that was a college hockey player and a, a scratch golfer. So I, I got introduced to sport early. And as you know, when you live up there, nothing's year-round, right? You're never playing one sport year-round. So I think that well-roundedness that you get from exposure to different sports, you know, playing baseball, I played hockey, like I said, obviously golf. I played a lot of stuff with a racket, um, whether it was squash or table tennis. So I got some good eye-hand coordination with skiing. I was playing some pretty good level hockey, you know, junior high, junior hockey, and then I got clocked pretty hard. And and golf – was our spring sport and hockey kind of went into the spring and I made a very smart decision very early on that hockey was not in the future for me. So uh, I kind of went more golf and uh, it's turned out to be a pretty good move. You won the Rhode Island Junior Championship at the age of 14. Was that kind of the moment for you where you're like, all right, this is, this is pretty serious. I'm really good at this. A couple things happened that week. I had a great qualifying. I played against some better players that were much older. And when you're 14 playing against 17-year-olds, that's a big deal at that age. Totally. Yeah. And, well, and I had a dad that didn't watch me play religiously, but he was out watching my semifinal match. And I had three-putted the 16th hole against this guy named George Matarosian, who is still a friend of mine. 
and I went two down with two to go, and I acted like an idiot after three putting that hole, and I topped my tee shot on the 17th hole, and it went into some long, wispy grasses, and it, it took us almost five minutes to find it. My dad, ironically, found it. But after I had topped that tee shot, I smashed my driver and broke it in half. And I ended up somehow winning that hole, winning the next hole. And then George, my friend, hit two shots out of bounds in the first extra hole. And I won the, won the hole to get into the finals. And my dad said, if I ever see you do anything like that again, this will be the last golf tournament you ever play in. So, I mean, it was good that my dad kind of laid down the law. I don't know it was good that I smashed my club, but... It kind of helped me to realize, okay, you can't be a jerk. Don't act spoiled. I got lucky, and I played well in the final to win. But I never thought at that age that I was going to be good enough to play PGA Tour level. I think when I was 17, I started winning some more, a little bit bigger events, some of the New England stuff, and I got recruited to play in college. But it wasn't until my junior year in college that I thought I could make it. You're a two-time All-American at Furman University. You win the Haskins Award as the nation's best collegiate golfer, which is certainly a big deal. But you, you say you, you weren't sure until your junior year. So what happened between your freshman year and your junior year where you're like, okay, I can do this professionally? So Furman had a decent men's program. They were Division I, AA. We had a great schedule. We played against Florida, Georgia, Wake Forest, North Carolina, Duke, all the top teams. Uh, back then, it was very different. And, and I thought, hey, if I went to a small school because I wasn't really good enough to get in those teams or I didn't think I was good enough, I wanted to play against the best players. And I had a good start to my freshman year, and I won a tournament. And in our pro shop at the Furman University Golf Course, we had two previous Furman alums that had made All-American and in golf, there's a first, second, and third team All-American. Then they have honorable mentions. Both of these guys have been honorable mentions from Furman. But every guy that I saw on these, these All-American plaques were big-name players that made it on the tour. And I said to myself, if I can be a first-team All-American, I can make it on the tour. And um, so I use that as kind of motivation. And funny enough, that the, the golf coach at Wake Forest, and Wake Forest had – one of the best teams in the history of college golf. Jesse Haddock was the, the coach, and he had written me, or actually it was a formal letter of written back to me because I wanted to go to Wake Forest. And he said to me, you will never get a um, scholarship to Wake Forest. We've never had a walk-on play. And I, I kept that letter, and I was always on the bottom bunk, and I, I had posted that underneath the bottom bunk because it really made me angry. And, and I won a tournament my freshman year. I made an honorable mention All-American. And then I got a real letter from Jesse Haddock saying, hey, would you like to come to Wake Forest to play? And I put that letter right next to the other one and said, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And uh, I never went anywhere but Furman. And it was a great choice. You know, there's a, there's a theme here of you playing well angry. Which, you know, having spent some time with you is actually surprising because you seem like a pretty mellow dude. Is there, any, is there anything to that or uh, is it more just your, a mindset? You, you got me. I, I like being called a grinder, somebody that never gives up. I mean, I, I think there were so many successful players that were grinders and there were a lot that weren't. There were a lot of players, and I would say Lanny Watkins, uh, Mark Kalkavecchia, 
come to mind immediately of players that John Daly that could easily throw in the towel with a bad start. I don't think I ever did that. I never quit. You know, I was, I was always a grit your teeth guy. Um, so maybe playing angry. I, I was proud of how many cuts I made on the number when it was grinding out on a Friday afternoon when you had to shoot a certain score. And I played a lot of tournaments. So I don't know. I never thought about playing angry as an asset, but may, maybe I'll have to go back and think about that one. You joined the tour. You turned pro 1983, if I've got that correctly. And then it was eight years before you win your first PGA Tour event, 1991, the Buick Open in a playoff. What was that eight-year period like? There was a couple dark periods in there. My second year on tour, I almost lost my card. I had a decent rookie year, finished 82nd on the money list and comfortably kept my PGA Tour card. And then the end of my second year of my sophomore slump, I missed the last five cuts uh, and I finished 124th on the money list. I had the driver yips, Will, and I don't know if anybody's ever had driver yips like I did, but I would wake up in the morning, my arms would ache, they would be sore because I was thinking so much of my swing. I was hitting so many balls. I was watching my swing all the time, uh, calling all the different coaches. I, I went to a myriad of different golf coaches during that time frame. And I think the next year, the start of 86, my third year, I think I missed nine cuts in a row to start the year, something pretty bad. And the worst thing I, I wanted to be called was a journeyman, you know, like a guy that's been out there forever and never does anything. And I, I got a little glimpse of hope in 86. I got a lesson from Peter Costas, who's still teaching a lot of top players, even Paul Casey now. He gave me a, a lesson. And I still remember this lesson to this day, Will. He stuck a tee in the butt into my club, and he said, you need to set your club faster on the backswing and set it faster on the through swing. And he had me hit seven irons off the tee, and it gave me some hope that I could hit a draw because I love to draw it. And I won a tournament that year in 86 that was not counted as an official event. It was opposite the U.S. Open where Ray Floyd won at Shinnecock. But it was a, still a big deal back then. It was official money. I beat a couple of good players. And even though that didn't count, it gave me some hope that I could play. I also won the Rhode Island Open. I came home during a couple of weeks off to win that. So I, I knew I could play. I knew I could win. But really, I, I was struggling because I was an 80th, 90th on the money list guy for too long. And then Billy Andrade, another golfer from Rhode Island that was on the tour, he won two events in a row in 91, uh, Westchester Tournament and Kemper. And I'm like, I know I can play with this guy. I know I can beat him. How come this isn't happening? And it isn't fair. And I was, whoa, whoa, pitiful me. And then I won a month later in a playoff. And uh, that was 1991, the Buick Open. So that was, you know, big relief. Um, and then things seemed to get better and better, a little bit easier after that. Let's talk about nerves for a second. I've, I've had the pleasure of, of getting to interview and also, you know, befriend a lot of really great golfers. And it seems everyone's got a slightly different point of view on, on nerves. How have you felt being in contention or coming down the stretch when, when you need to make a putt? You know, have you found that the, you've had different nerves in all those situations? Is it just consistently some level of nerves? Talk a little bit about, about that and, and how you've overcome it. Well, that playoff at the Buick Open was nerves. And I had uh, a six-foot putt for par to win my first tournament. And back then, that was life-changing stuff. It was winning a tournament got you in the Masters. 
winning a tournament got you exempt for two years. Winning a tournament got you enough money so you knew you'd have some kind of lifestyle um, and accomplishing goals, maybe, maybe chance to make um, the invitationals. Back then, finishing the top 70 in the money list got you in tournaments like Bay Hill or the Memorial Tournament. But there's also playing with fear and playing scared. And when I told you I had driver yips, I remember playing where I was so scared to hit a shot. I had no idea where the ball was going. I literally could have hit it 50 yards to the right or to the left. That's different than nerves. You know, that was, that was being consumed with the game and the swing with the concept. And I think everybody that's played this game has had at some point they're scared of a shot or a chip or a putt. That's different than nerves. I, I mean, I love the nerves you get on that first tee at Augusta. I love that nerves at a Ryder Cup or, or a chance to win down the stretch where you're so heightened and when your heart rate's bump, bump, bump and adrenaline's pump. And that's, I think, what all of us want to play for. That's what's been fun about doing Whoop Live, which I know you, you've seen on broadcast, but where we were showing live heart rates at the end of tournaments or for certain shots. And, you know, the thing that I think people underestimate is the fact that you do feel nerves like just because you're a professional athlete and a lot of people are watching you and you've done this before doesn't mean you don't feel nerves standing over that that last putt I mean Rory had a two and a half foot putt to win a tournament last year and his heart rate was at like 135 beats per minute you know this is a guy with a resting heart rate probably at 45 you know I just think that's pretty fascinating I think that's one of the great stats and, and every single spectator fan watching can appreciate that. And I had a, a trainer when I lived in Rhode Island. So I've been in Florida now for eight years. Uh, Doug Perrin was his name. Doug, he knew an awful lot of stuff that I didn't know about. But one of the things that he always said to me, you know, if we were doing a workout, if we might start with a little bit of cardio stuff to warm up or if we're doing some interval training or some power sets when your heart rate was, you know, up and down, he would always ask me, what's your heart rate now? When we trained with a heart rate monitor, um, before that was even cool to do, you know, for golf. And I was always good at guessing what my heart rate was. And now I love having whoop on my wrist because I, I can check it at any time, whether it's when I'm doing a workout here in you know, this place where I am, where you see these clubs, this is my garage. And I've got weights here. I got a bench. I got a bunch of bands. I got a pull up bar there and I do during COVID, especially doing all these workouts by myself or FaceTime with my trainer. And I could always check where I was. Uh, and, and that was always fun. And I like that sort of knowing where you are at all moments. And, and I tell a lot of the players that I teach, if they can get good, say at guessing how far a flag stick is away before they use their distance measuring device, that that's a good sort of sense of feel. And I think the best players in the world innately know where they are. And I think knowing where you are can really help calm you down. And and when you see that whoop thing and and see Rory at 130, I think I'd be at 180 for some of those (laughs) positions. It's awesome. How how long have you been on whoop now? It's got to be, well, at least four Four years now, I think. Talk a little bit about sleep and recovery and lifestyle. And you can describe your own, but also how you think maybe it's changed on the tour over, over the years. So I think golf is one of the hardest sports to, to try and find a consistent sort of lifestyle on the road. It's not like the team sports where you know 
what time you're playing, any, you know, the, the closest we come to that is we get our tee times on a Tuesday morning for when we're going to play on Thursday and Friday. And I was never a person that wanted to have a late tee time and be up at six o'clock in the morning. You know, if, if I'm home, I know what my sleep habits are. I'm in bed between 11 and 1130 and I'm up between 630 and seven. I mean, I can exist on five or six hours sleep, but it's a sloppy afternoon when I do that. When I was playing golf, I was never a guy that could go to bed at nine o'clock because I was playing early the next morning or go to bed at 1130 or 12 because I was playing late. So I, I had trouble with that while I was playing. And, and I think I didn't know enough about sleep, sleep habits and recovery in the prime of my career. I, I, I can't imagine how that could have improved some of the ways I might wanted to take care of myself. And I would give you an example, Will. When, when players go play at the British Open now, and I remember at Turnbury, I was playing well, and it was in the final group going into Sunday, and it's a 3.15 p.m. tee time. And, you know, the sun doesn't go down until 10.30 or 11 or later, and but it comes out at 4, and, and it was hard to get blackout shades there. So I, I was with Davis Love and our wives, and we were at the Turnbury Hotel. We stayed up playing snooker and, you know, just tried to stay awake as long as we could so I could sleep in because – your brain starts working, you know, when you have all this time. And I think that's the fascinating part about golf is this mental side. And you've dealt with it in every sport and all the athletes. But, you know, we're playing golf for four and a half hours. And there's, what, 12 to 15 minutes of that total time is hitting a shot. So there's a lot of free time for your mind to explore. And sometimes that can be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So when you think about the mindset of the game, what kind of tricks or, or habits did you have? You know, are you, were you someone who would meditate? Would you vis- visualize before events? I, I, I spoke to Gary Player at length and he talked about one year winning the Masters. He, he woke up every morning and just stared at the leaderboard for hours before he played and pictured his name at the top of the leaderboard. And that's obviously an extreme example. But I'm curious where you are on that on that spectrum. That's interesting. I, I wonder, you know, players are so good at telling these stories after they've happened. And I'm wondering, did you really do that? Because I've never heard of any great golfer say they did that. But it sounds good now. And I get a kick out of listening to players' interviews after they win a tournament, whether it's Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholas, saying, well, I knew if I shot 65 today, after they shot 65 that day, that I'd win. And I'm like, how did you know that? <laughs> you know, oh, How did you know somebody else would shot right. 65? But... I was an early advocate of yoga for some reason. I, I got introduced in the early 80s by a golfer named Mac O'Grady, who I'm not sure you would have heard of Mac O'Grady, but he was a kind of a fanatic at yoga and conditioning. So conditioning was always part of my life. Um, yoga had a meditative side to it, and doing all those poses was a challenge. I thought it was good for golf because it was obviously the physical parts of the flexibility, the endurance, that one of the so some muscular strength needed, but also the the quieting of the mind and the breath. And I mean, the breath was always something I, I thought was important for us to control heart rate, uh, control your thoughts, get you into that. You know, everybody's trying to get into that flow state, the zone, uh, and, and quieting your mind. And, and I worked a lot of times on trying to slow everything down and quieting my, down, quieting my mind, but trying to quiet quickly, you know, when, when you had to. And I think that's a great asset to have in anything that you do in your life. But if, if you can do it in sport, 
it's a great way to get some success out of it. Okay, we got to talk about putting. If you think about your own putting career, what would you summarize about it that you feel like made you such a great putter? Was it the mindset going into it? Was it the stroke? Was it all the above? It's a little bit of everything. I grew up in this little town of Rhode Island and happened to have a beautiful course uh, called Rhode Island Country Club, designed by Donald Ross. Uh, tiny little greens, like many of the old courses, the slope from the back to the front. Uh, when I was a young kid, caddying, we often had two on the greens where I could watch the ball, the path the ball took uh, to the hole. And so I learned to green. I could see that path the ball took. And I think everybody kind of knows what I'm talking about. The kind of the ball snowballs there through the, the wet grass. You can see the line the ball took. And I've kind of carried that picture in my mind. And uh, I've been complimented by some of the players I've played with about green reading and how good a green reader I've been. That's valuable. It's hard to teach. You know, it's kind of like when you have a young kid, you're trying to teach them how to throw a ball the right distance, the right height, and the right speed. That's what putting is, isn't it? It's all those things. you got to start it online. you got to have a certain pace to it and uh, have it the, go the right distance. So that, that was something that obviously was learned. And I think when you get out there, you have choices that you can like what you're doing or you can not like what you're doing. And I see technology as a, with the different advancements we've seen with just, you know, going from VHS tape to high eight to, you know, video cameras on a phone uh, and then slow motion, being able to check out all the technologies. And we have biomechanists now that looking at wrist graphs and they're looking at weight shifts for putting. And some of it can be really helpful and some of it can be really, really hurtful. And, and I think with most players, when they play well, their mind's quiet, they're instinctive, they're athletic, and they're not thinking about everything that's out there. And, and sometimes they forget that it's still a game and that it should still be fun uh, and we should still have putting contests. And, and that's part of it. Like, you need to know mechanics, but you also need to know how to let it go when you get out on the course. When you think about the best putters, one thing that fascinates me about golf and putting is just the fact that there's a bunch of great putters and they all look different standing over the ball. Now, when it comes to actually hitting the ball, do you find that there are some greats that have sort of violated some basics to what the right tempo might be, but they've just perfected it for themselves, much the way you can have your own posture? Or are there certain aspects to putting that just have to be in order for you to be great? I never like to use the word never or always when I talk about some players or techniques or fundamentals. But it seems to me like the best players in the world, they may have slightly different tempos when they putt, but they were really good at repeating those. Uh, and and they, they kind of fell in love or were never obsessed with somebody else's way of doing it. They, they loved their way of doing it. And, you know, when we talk about the best putters in the world, I, I got a little trouble this this last year, because I did a top 10 putting list, I, my favorite putters. And I, and I came up with Tiger and Jack. And right. I've got that printed out in front of me. You can maybe read it out, because I don't remember the order I put them in right now. Number one, Tiger Woods made every putt he had to. Ben Crenshaw, Seve Ballesteros, four, Tom Watson, five, Bobby Locke, six, Jack Nicholas, seven, Jose Maria Ola Thabel, eight, Billy Casper, nine, Bobby Jones, and 10, Rory McIlroy. Yeah, so there's so many. This would be a podcast in itself, Will. But 
there's not one player on there that looks like another player putty, not one. And uh, the Hall of Famers, it is fascinating. And, and Jack Nicholas bent over the, the ball so much. He was so bent over that when he was standing up over his putt, his head was lower than his upper back. And his eyes were so close to the ball and his elbows were so far apart. Uh, and you had all the in-betweens. Ben Crenshaw stood much more upright and used much longer flowing stroke than Jack. Bobby Locke hooked putts. Tiger looked like a machine hitting putts. Seve Ballesteros had the best-looking grip on a putter I'd ever seen. I mean, there were so many different things on there that made me think, how can you teach one way to do this when they're all different? And, you know, I threw Rory's name in there, and I, had, I think I had a lot of people tied for 10th, but a lot of people got mad that I put Rory down there. But I said, you know what, if Rory ever does see this, I'd like him to see his name on there because I've seen him have weeks where nobody putted better than him. And it was the first week we got together. He had strokes game putting week that was one of his best, if not his best putting weeks ever. And, and literally throughout last year, he, he won twice. And both of the weeks that he won, he won the, the tournament by putting. And I think that was, I think that's going to help Rory in the later part of his career. Cause most of the time he won from unbelievably great ball striking. And I've been happy to see that consistency of his putting the last four years since we've been together um, be maintained. And when we get together, we're not talking about technical parts of the stroke anymore. And I think that's a good place for a player to be. Well, he said something fascinating to me about how he thinks about 95% of whether the putt goes in or not happens actually before he hits the ball. But describe what he was getting at. A lot of people wouldn't know what that means. Well, what, what does that mean, 95%? And it's, it's the preparation that goes into you know, reading the green, going through a pre-shot routine that every player has to work to have a pre-shot routine that's not only something repeatable that you can see that they do physically, but that's something they get in their mind in a better place. And we talk about pre-shot routine and how do you read a putt? How do you walk into the ball? Where do you take your practice strokes? Do you take practice strokes? Uh, what do you do differently on um, a short putt versus long putt? Do you have an intermediate spot? Uh, do you pick a spot to aim at that's somewhere halfway between the ball and the hole, like an intermediate spot? Do you pick a spot out by the hole? Emotion, acceptance, all those things are part of those things. I mean, acceptance isn't before the putt, but like a baseball player that's the Hall of Famer that batted 300, so they only got three out of 10 hits, you're going to hit more putts in your life than miss than make. So that word acceptance is how do you deal with putts that don't go in? And I think that's as important in putting as any other part of it, more so than how your stroke is. And I think that's where Rory's gotten better. That's where I feel like that gives you longevity. So when you, when you have these frustrating weeks when you're hitting good putts and they might not go in, and there's no explanation for why they're not going in, uh, and you can live with that a lot better. So, Will, that's, that's something that is another – important part of putting that's really hard to deal with it's, it's the mental side uh, and that would have been something that I think I did pretty well throughout my career and that hopefully I'm passing on and I definitely see that with Rory now. Rory also said that essentially a putting lesson with you now could be going to get a cup of coffee and just talking and that to me was a fascinating image and it spoke so much to how you guys probably work together but also just that it's about the preparation it's about the mental 
discipline, you know, to reline it up, all those little things that, that we just talked about that ultimately make for the outcome. It's not necessarily always standing on the putting green and watching, you know, him take it back. Uh, and it, it just was a fascinating concept to me that a putting lesson could be over a cup of coffee. In the coffee shop. Yeah, I, I can say, you know, we've, we've had cups of coffee and, and talked about a lot. And we've gone to the Bears Club uh, to practice out on the putting green and spend an hour or more over lunch or a cup of coffee in the locker room just talking about situations uh, or talking about places you want to be with your mind. And, you know, a, a lot of the players, including Rory, went to play up at Augusta National the last few days or weeks. Uh, for preparation and going back to that Gary player quote, you said about how he sat and stared at his name on a leaderboard while he was playing these tournaments. I think for, you know, these players know this course so well, right? They, they know every little inch of the golf course. Um, they, they learn it over the time and then the, the amount of rounds that they, they play there. But I think too, for someone like Rory or any Justin Thomas, when Tiger even went, hopefully he plays when they go back there for, practice round before the actual tournament it gives them time to think about what it's going to feel like on each hole where they might be on the time of the day it's so different playing that course morning midday and later in the evening with big shadows and and, you know the shadows come it flattens the light it makes it harder to to read but you you could go and and really give yourself some lessons say for example when Rory was there and he said he played by himself. His caddy, Harry, was walking around. And they might be thinking about, you know, a shot in a situation that they're going to have on, let's take the holes on the, the start of the back nine, on 10 where you want to draw it around the trees. Well, is it a three? What is it a driver? Why? When? What if the wind's in a certain situation? You know, maybe I don't need to curve it as much. Maybe I can just hit it straight. Should I hit it low? Those, those are the things that I think make the players much more comfortable and, and you can think back to some of your practice days and say, oh, you know what? That ball kicks left there when that pin's there. And, and you get to see stuff that, you know, when you're playing with other players or when there's a gallery around, you might not have the time to notice some of the subtleties because every year, and we're going to hear about it all week, there's been changes. So I think that's why they do it. And, and that tournament means so much to so many of the players. It, it makes a lot of sense why they keep going, even though it's the only major that's played on the same course every year. I like the word uh, subtleties because that, from my experience of being there as a fan and, and having the pleasure of playing there, like the attention to detail at Augusta National is about as high as I've ever seen anywhere in my life, golf aside. And the other thing that's hard I found to appreciate just as being a fan versus walking the course or playing it is th- there's so many, it's almost like you never hit a flat shot. It's hard to tell that on television, but there's just these little undulations. Speak a little bit to just how how it feels out there. Normally when you're playing flatter courses, the the lie is always pretty level. It's something you practice on when you're warming up in the practice team. I don't think there's a shot at Augusta National where you are level or you're not hitting a shot that's a little bit up or a little bit downhill. And it's kind of a forest there when you're playing Augusta National. There's trees everywhere. The winds swirl around. Um, you, you can feel like you're playing a couple holes in a row downwind, and all of a sudden, the same direction. It feels like it's against the wind. Uh, that's part of the subtleties and, and what makes the, the routing of Augusta National so good, so treacherous, so difficult. When you finish, you, you feel like you, you know, it's a marathon, really, a mental marathon. And I, one of the caddies I had, I told you, I, I went 
in late January to play a couple days with a friend that's a member. And this caddy had a great line. He said, you don't read the greens at Augusta National, you learn them. And, and I think you could take that phrase and say it's, it's you do that about every single hole. Uh, and, you know, Ben Crenshaw, who would probably be the greatest, greatest player architect alive, has always said that about the best courses in the world, Augusta National, St. Andrews, where every time you go there, you learn something about it. And as closely packed in as the talent level is right now, if you learn one thing that gives you an advantage, that gives you, you know, half a shot during a round or a tournament or a full shot, that could come back and pay so many dividends. And that's why the players keep going there. Okay, let's do a few. Uh, we'll do a few rapid fire questions, starting with uh, with the Masters. What are your predictions for who wins the Masters or who, who's going to have a great tournament? Uh, I'm notoriously the worst picker of all time. I did have a good streak in college where I picked in the back-to-back years, Seve Ballesteros and Craig Stadler. But I will tell you emotionally, of course, I want Rory to win. I think there are some players that seem to be in contention there every single year. Xander Shoffley's done a good job at that, uh, where you think he's got to break through. He's got to win a major championship. The beautiful play of the, the young players now, uh, Morikawa, Hovland, Scheffler, Sam Burns. How, how could you pick any of them and say they don't have a chance? Uh, they're all hitting the ball so well. I look at Paul Casey every year and how well he played at, at the Players' Championship at 44 years old and, and how well he's been. He's a, he's a rock on the tour. And then, then you have some surprising guys that you know play well at certain events. A guy like Kevin Kistner, how well he does in the match play. Can he do it? He's an Augusta native. Uh, he'd be great for the game to do. And then you see guys that have been champions like Bubba Watson. I mean, could he come back and win a third green jacket? Jordan Spieth, I think he's one of the most captivating players in the world to watch, isn't he? When he goes. And and he's gone through great putting stretches, right? Yeah, then they need that. And, and will John Rahm be able to hold it together mentally and will be able to get his putter going? And, and I think Justin Thomas is knocking on the door for another major. He's big time. He's the ball so well. T Green, I know he's a big whoop advocate, close with Rory. And then... I mean, dare we say, if, if Tiger could ever even, if he gets in the field, would he be able to be sharp enough uh, to show something on the weekend? If there's ever been a moral of the Tiger Woods story, it's don't bet against Tiger. I think he said in his own interview, an interview saying that he loves to prove himself wrong. You know, he loves to prove others wrong. Oh, you can't do that, Tiger. That's the worst thing you could say. But I think he's... He's good at being able to prove the doubters, and, and he's a doubter himself sometimes. And if he can, if he can show up and hit a tee shot there and walk down that first fairway, I can't imagine what that will do for the world of golf. I think I just can't help but think he's going to do it. I also can't help but think he's going to play, you know, well enough to make the cut or something and just shock all of us. It's I don't know. That's Tiger Woods. So while we're on Tiger, what's been most impressive for you about his career? I met Tiger Woods in. When he was 14 years old, he got a spot to play in what was the Honda Classic down here. And I was a, certainly a veteran. That would have been early 90s. I was playing pretty good golf. And he wanted to join me and uh, I think it was Dudley Hart playing the back nine of a practice round. And we all hit tee shots and he had his own bag and had his own bag stand. And we walked up to the ball and I, I walked past the first ball. I saw 
walked up 30 yards and saw that it was Tigers when I came 30 yards back. Like I, I got this 14-year-old hitting at 30 by me. But what was amazing to me was he knew I was a good putter. He knew I had a good short game. And he never stopped asking questions or wanting to have contests or learn stuff. And I, I love that about Tiger. You know, he, he's played great under three different coaches, uh, maybe four, where, where he, he's been inquisitive. Uh, and he's, he's played great for decades now. He's done it with length and power like the great players did early in their career, like Jack Nicklaus or Ben Hogan or Sam Snead. Uh, and then he's been able to think himself away around the course when, when he hasn't been able to hit it by everybody else in the field. And that's how he's played now. And Jack Nicholas always said that as well. As, as he gets smarter, he didn't have to hit it as far as he just had to know where to hit it. And also, uh, along with all of the amazing things you described, just an incredibly captivating person to watch, which has just been so overwhelmingly good for the sport of golf and grown it in such an enormous way. It was interesting. I was listening to Patrick Cantley talk about Tiger, and he said that because Patrick Cantley went through these crazy periods where he was making these putts under enormous pressure, and I think the interviewer asked him something about, you know, you just made this 25-footer to go into a playoff, and you looked like you were kind of still in the trance, so to speak. Patrick said something to the effect of, that that's how I do it. Like, I've got sort of one speed, so to speak, and I'm just incredibly focused, and I'm in that in that space. And then he alluded to Tiger, and he said what made Tiger, what has made Tiger so captivating is that he's able to be in this deeply, deeply focused state where it's like there's nothing else in the world but whatever he's doing. And then the moment happens, and he completely breaks out of it and becomes this larger-than-life personality for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, and then all of a sudden he's back in the trance. I got to play with him in the 1997 Ryder Cup. It was his first Ryder Cup, my second. We were the only two guys that weren't married on the team, so we rode together on the Concord over there, and I got a little bit of a taste of what was inside of him, how he thought and, and how he was obsessed with beating everyone. Uh, and he did it for a long time, and I think he offended some people early on by winning tournaments and saying, I don't even have my A game, and he said that a lot. And I, I, Davis Love and I tried to sit down with him and say, look, you know, I know you're really good. Uh, but you know how many people you're pissing off when you say that? He goes, no, I'm not pissing people off. I'm just telling them the truth. I'm winning, but I'm, I'm certain parts of my game aren't right. And, and when I get them, then I'll be really good. And that's what happened. <laughs> we saw that in that stretch of golf from 2000 to 2004. We're like, holy, holy crap, he was right. Uh, he had another gear. And I think his 15 major championships – Versus Jack's 18, I think it was harder to win. It was definitely harder to win now uh, for a bunch of reasons. The, the depth of field is certainly stronger, the depth of talent. And with the media now and the pressure from all different avenues, whether it's uh, the fans, the television, the money, it's, it's harder and harder. It's going to be harder and harder to, for anybody to do what Jack did, what Tiger did, um, even what Rory's doing. So you think going forwards, it'll be hard for someone to eclipse 15? I do. And, and again, it's, it's going to take a rare sort of person to do it. And you see some of these guys jump out of the gate like Colin Morikawa has won two majors already. Speaks early success in his three majors. And, and then how hard it 
becomes the challenges afterwards as you, you're making all this money and you get some sort of stardom and you have to kind of say no a lot. You have to learn how to say no in a nice way if, if you want to be loved. And Rory's been the best in the world at that. I mean, uh, we read a book together called Essentialism uh, and learning how to say no. And, uh, you know, you, you do that in a gracious way. And only a few were good at that. I would say Arnold Palmer was very good at that. Uh, maybe Phil Mickelson, you know, the people that had long careers that had huge followings. I see Hovland as a guy that's going to be like that. But I, I, I don't think Tiger, you know, Tiger said no a lot. Uh, maybe he didn't do it in a gracious way, but he certainly did in a way that allowed him to continue to play great, great golf. Your three favorite golf courses, uh, you only get to play three courses for the rest of your life. What three courses are you choosing? Okay, this is really hard. Uh, this is like naming the top 10 best putters. Uh, you're always going to tick somebody off, but Pine Valley is my favorite place to play. I think it's one of the best courses I've been everywhere. It's had some of the greatest architects and architects in history. And I'm, I'm kind of learning more and more about architecture as we go. I might go to three different continents because I think St. Andrews deserves that. Every time, like Crenshaw said, you go there, something else is magical about it, the home of the game. I love that course. And then I went to a place in New Zealand right before COVID started called Taraiti. If you haven't been, put it on your list because it is someplace you'll never want to leave once you get there. Well, this has been a real pleasure and I'm excited to see you again uh, at some point in person. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, I got to tell you, you're so prepared for this. You're so good at it. Uh, I'm going to listen to more of your podcast. Thanks to Brad for coming on the Whoop podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating, a review. Don't forget to subscribe. Check us out on social at Whoop at Will Ahmed. Use the code Will. Get 15% off. And that's all for now, folks. Enjoy the Masters. Enjoy the week.